0: Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams.
1: Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and... AM 950, The Word in Orlando, and we're always so happy when you join us. Uh, So is Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer, uh, the man behind the glass. And uh, Andrew Herdliska produces this show for us each weekend. Uh, Sean Smucker joins us from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, His book is out with Ravel, Once We Were Strangers, What Friendship with a Syrian Refugee taught me about loving my neighbor. Sean, welcome. Nice to talk to you. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me.
1: Give me the background on this book.
2: Yeah, so I was doing some volunteer work with an organization called Church World Service, CWS, and uh, they're a refugee resettlement organization here in the States. They help refugees get settled after they're here. And I was uh, doing some spotlights on some of the people they were helping and just writing some things up for my blog and for their site. And um, it was at that point in about, let's see, 2015, 2016, when things in Syria were getting really bad. And so I asked them if they could connect me with any Syrians here in Lancaster. I was just interested in meeting someone and kind of getting to know them better and uh, so they connected me with Muhammad, and that's that's kind of where it all began.
1: Who is Muhammad?
2: Muhammad is um, he's a Syrian refugee. He's married. He has four sons. And he arrived here in the States in 2016 after spending four years in Jordan. He had fled Syria uh, to the south through uh, he and his wife and kids hiked through about 20 miles of wilderness. Ended up in one of the largest refugee camps in the world, the There are about 80,000 people there. I think it's like the fourth largest city now in Jordan. So he was there for a little while, stayed in the country of Jordan for four years, and then the U.N. helped to relocate him here to the States.
1: I want you to um, explain how you put this book together. Part one is the friend, part two the foreigner, part three is the neighbor, Uh, Part one, The Friend, and you uh, do 11 different chapters there. What's the background here? What's the story on this first part?
2: Yeah, so the first part was really based out of my first meeting with Muhammad. I went into the CWS office to meet him, and I had a translator with me. Um, and so I was a little nervous. I didn't really know, you know, what he would think of me. I know what a lot of Americans think of Middle Easterners, and you kind of see on the news the violence and everything that happens over there in regards to the West. So I wasn't sure uh, what he would think of me. Well, we sat down and started talking through our translator. At some point I told him, you know, I mean, he knew that we were meeting to, to explore the idea of writing a book. And so at some point I just wanted to make sure he understood that, you know, it was very early in the process and that it was it was pretty possible that a book would not come of this. So I told him, I said, you know, Muhammad, thank you for meeting with me, but it's quite possible nothing will come of this. And he said something that really struck me um, through the translator who turned to me and said, it's impossible for nothing to come of this because we're friends now. And that that had a really big impact on me that he would be so open and um, so welcoming to me even though he was, he was the person who was, you know, out of his element in a strange place, talking to strange people. And um, so at that moment, I really felt, I don't know, I just felt like my heart really opened up to him, and, and um, we became friends from there and just started spending more time together.
1: Uh, do you continue to see him?
2: He has actually moved. In the spring, he moved out to Michigan, to Grand Rapids, Uh, or just just east of Grand Rapids he had some friends out there Um, and so we still talk on the phone about once a week and I get out there every once in a while and whenever I go I see him I saw him a couple of weeks ago and it was really good to catch up but um, yeah it's it's uh, we became quite good friends so it's really sad to me that he's not around here anymore
1: has he learned English
2: yeah he has yeah he he was speaking Um, we actually didn't use a translator for the rest of our meetings. It was just that first one because I wasn't sure exactly where he was at, but he speaks very good English. Um, his wife is learning English. His boys uh, are actually wonderful English speakers. There were times when Muhammad would be trying to tell me a story and we get stuck on a word. And so we'd have to shout for his boys to come over and interpret for us. But they're, yeah, they're all doing really well.
1: Uh, the second part uh, of your book is called The Foreigner. Uh, What are you writing there? What's that about?
2: Uh, That section focuses a little bit more on his journey. So um, his decision to leave Syria after his village was consistently getting bombed by the government. Um, His time in Jordan, which was, you know, just it was very frustrating. It was a time that he wasn't allowed to work. Um, The kids couldn't go to school. So it was just sort of very long days, day after day after day. And what it was like for him then to arrive in the States and to make friends and to get a job and um, to become self-sufficient. So it was you know, kind of that journey for him as a foreigner. But it was also for me um, thinking a little bit more about the Old Testament and how you know, so many times the Israelites are um, they are asked to remember that they were once foreigners. And, you know to treat the foreigners among them with respect and dignity and love and uh, because they were once foreigners and so that was sort of the other part that was going on there was me uh, just reflecting back on those sorts of commands or instances or encouragements in the Bible and and um, yeah reflecting on how I was treating the foreigners in my midst.
1: How did he get into the States? He was pretty fortunate wasn't he?
2: Yeah he was very fortunate um, there was um, basically kind of a lottery going on. Um, he, was a, he, he would go to the UN office every day or every week and, and speak with whoever he could. Um, and there was a, for some time there he you know it looked like he may go to Scandinavia or Germany. Um, refugees don't really have much of a say in where they go. They're sort of overseen by the UN and then uh, the other countries who are involved work with, with the, the refugee resettlement group to decide, you know, who's going to get who and who's going to go where. So um, it was really at the last minute. I think there were, you know, at the point that he was in Jordan, I think there were 500,000, 600,000 refugees there, and I think they were only taking maybe five or 10,000 to the state. So, yeah, he was, he was very fortunate.
1: How does he feel about his native land?
2: Um, most of the time when we talk, um i mean he misses it he misses his mom he misses his siblings who are still there but there's really nothing left uh, of his village nobody heart very few people live there anymore um so he's you know he's sad about having to leave um but he's so patriotic about the u.s i'm always amazed at how enthusiastic he is um and it makes sense you know it it, it this country's given him a new start and a new chance, and um, especially hope for his boys and and for his family. So, um, yeah, I mean, he loves Syria, but there's there's just nothing really left there for him.
1: How old are his boys, and what will become of them?
2: So, his sons are around. Let's see, freshman in high school, so I think 15, and then eighth grade, sixth grade, and second grade. So, um. They're doing really well, they're they're adjusting well, they're doing well in school. Um, they have high hopes, they love the fact that they can get an education, you know, they were getting that in Syria, but then in Jordan that wasn't happening. So they're really excited about, about going to school and learning, and uh, they all seem to be adapting really well.
1: Sean Smucker is our guest, he's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, his book is out, it's called Once We Were Strangers. Uh, What Friendship with a Syrian Refugee Taught Me About Loving My Neighbor?" And uh, we've got another segment with Sean. A very, very interesting story. Uh, Mohammed, who made his way through the wilderness to Jordan, fleeing from the chemical warfare and violence in Syria. He left behind his home village in the only world he ever knew, hoping to find a better life for his family in a new world, Where foreigners are looked upon with eyes that reveal contempt and fear. And of course our guest Sean, a middle-aged man living in America's oldest inland city, made a modest and happy life for his family as a writer. Somehow he found himself staring at the face of the stranger sitting across from him. And uh, that's our story, that's what we're talking about. We've got another segment with Sean, but first We've got messages right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More
0: of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on ninety-four point nine FM and AM nine fifty. The word now, once again, here's Pat.
1: As we have uh, mentioned, this book of uh, Sean's is in three parts: the friend, the foreigner, and then part three is the neighbor. That's where we've arrived, Sean. Uh, what are you What are you writing
2: about there in the
1: third part?
2: The third part of the neighbor is really a reflection on um, the story that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. And so, you know, an an expert in religious law comes to him and and is trying to figure out how to get eternal life. And and eventually he and Jesus sort of hammer down to this point where Jesus says, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man turns around and asks, well, who is my neighbor? And instead of answering that question Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan a story that many of us know Um, I know I grew up hearing that story all the time and it's that story really that that came to my mind so often in my friendship with Muhammad is you know Muhammad is my neighbor Um, what what will I do will I will I just leave him to fend for himself or will I use all of my resources and my relationships and my friendship to um, just to try and help him have a better life. And so that that's what I start to unpack a little bit in that last section.
1: You're a novelist. Uh, So how did a novelist uh, write this memoir? Was it helpful to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, so so being a novelist definitely, I think, helps with with finding a story arc and you know uh, trying to create the things that go into creating a good novel. Um, but I also make a living co-writing and ghostwriting books, and most of those are memoirs for other people. So I've written a lot of nonfiction books, a lot of memoirs and um, it's, this didn't feel too like too much of a stretch for me.
1: Sean, how do you describe Lancaster County, Pennsylvania uh, to one who's never been there?
2: Yeah, so Lancaster, uh well known for the Amish who live out in the country. And then we have a small city sort of at the at the center of the county and it's about seventy thousand people, sixty, seventy thousand people. It's a really beautiful little city. Um and it's it's one of the most welcoming. I, I read recently somewhere that there are more refugees per capita in Lancaster County than any other place in the United States. So um it's a very welcoming place. We have there's a lot of diversity especially here in the city. Um, and and it's I don't know I think it's a really nice place for for someone to end up. There are so many people here who want to try and help, and um, Muhammad really seemed to enjoy his time here.
1: Sean, um, so many novels are now being written about the Amish. Uh, mm. what, what, why is that? What are your thoughts? That's interesting.
2: I I think there's uh, I think we have you know as we speed forward in technology and. Uh, as we speed forward in sort of not knowing our neighbors anymore and being so busy and and really relatively isolated uh, relationally, um, I think there's a real interest and a real fascination with this community, you know, that remains a strong community even in the midst of all these other cultural changes that are happening. So I think people are fascinated with that. I think people are always fascinated with simpler time. Um, And I, I really believe that's, that's kind of what what lies at the heart of that.
1: Do we know what the Amish believe? Or where do they stand spiritually?
2: They are, um, they're Anabaptists, uh, so they would be very closely aligned with Mennonites. Um, uh, let's see, pacifists, so they wouldn't fight in war. Um, the, the main difference between the Amish and the Mennonite is that the Amish uh, believe in a very strict separation from the rest of society and also um, the practice of shunning. So if you don't follow their rules to the T, you will be shunned from the community. That's sort of uh, unique to the Amish community. Um, They are very works-oriented as far as, you know, their faith goes. So uh, salvation is something that's earned through living a good life and and, and, um, living, you know, according to particular rules that your community creates. So it's um yeah, that has a lot to do with with the way that they live
1: do they have church services?
2: yeah, they meet in homes usually every other week uh and it rotates throughout their um the area so you have a bishop who oversees an area and each area also has a couple of they're called districts each district has also has a couple of preachers um and a deacon and so the the church sort of rotates um different houses throughout the district
1: if you and I wanted to pop in and go to one of their services would we would we be allowed
2: (laughs) Uh, yeah I think we could I think um, well and especially because I still have Amish relatives so if you ever want to go just let me know
1: how about that (laughs) very very interesting what are your thoughts Sean as you're reading about these refugees coming up from Central America and hoofing their way through Mexico,
2: yeah. heading to the yeah, U.S. border, what do, you, what,
1: what, are your, what do you think?
2: It's a really it's a sad situation. Um, I mean, my thoughts are that we should continue to treat that situation the way that we have for decades now, which is basically, you know, it's legal for someone to show up at our border and ask for asylum, and then their case needs to be considered. Um, that's kind of where I where I'm at with it right now, but obviously we have to to uh, continue to watch and see how it plays out.
1: My guest is uh, Sean Smucker. Uh, he um, has written this very very interesting book called "Once We Were Strangers." Uh, so, to listeners today, Sean, based on what you've written here in your story, what what, what do you tell us? What's your advice?
2: I would say, you know, I mean, this book is, is on the face of it, a book about welcoming refugees. But I think there's also a deeper deeper level to it about um, how important it is for us to return to getting to know our neighbors, you know. And so whether or not your neighbors are refugees or immigrants or have lived in America their whole lives, I, I just think it's so important that we return to that practice of knowing the people who are around us. You know, I think so many of us just drive our cars into our garages and um we never never speak to anyone outside of our house, rarely know anyone. I mean, we're on Facebook and Twitter and so we feel like we're interacting with people, but I, I think we're actually really lonely for the most part. And I'm not sure that many of us know how to be a good friend anymore. I certainly realized that about myself. Um, As I became friends with Muhammad, I realized how isolated I am and how selfish I am. And so I would just encourage people, you know, and I think the book encourages people to open up your hearts to your neighbors and get to know people. And I think that would do a lot to help to stem this, this sort of tide of fear that we've been experiencing.
1: Sean, is immigration aid and refugee assistance a cultural, political, or faith issue?
2: Well, you know, I don't think that refugee refugee resettlement was a political issue for a long time because it was it was basically something that was started by, I believe, it was Ronald Reagan in the early eighties, and um, it was something that was carried on by both parties. Recently, it's become highly politicized, which I think is unfortunate because. Basically, with a refugee, you just have someone who, um, you know, who's fleeing their country because they they have no other options, and so um, it's a, it's a really really difficult situation, and it's sad. But I think I think if 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 we are Christians, if we're practicing Christians, I think it's really important that we analyze the words of Christ um, in in trying to decide how we're going to respond to these things.
1: What do you think god's position is on this issue which creates so much debate at work church and families around Mm. the country what do you think he thinks
2: well i think jesus said what his position was you know love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and so um you know what would uh, how would i want to be loved if i was Mahantri? how would i want to be um helped and welcomed in i think i think we just have to Continually ask ourselves, uh, using the golden rule: How would we how would we want to be treated if we were, if we were in that situation?
1: Author Sean Sean Smucker is in Lancaster, PA. Uh, the author of Once We Were Strangers. Sean, I want you to react to this statement: Many of the more than three million refugees provided for and protected by the U.S. since 1975. Have contributed to America's rich history through their influence, expertise, and military service. Uh, what's your reaction to that statement?
2: Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's something that we should all dwell on, you know, and think about. It's it's important to know the facts when it comes to refugees, and um, you know, an important fact is that no refugee has ever been involved in a in a terrorist act in the United States, and. There are other, you know, there are facts like that that I think we just, we need to be aware of when we're trying to make decisions about who we're going to welcome in and and the policies that we're going to make. And so, um, yeah, I think in my experience with Muhammad and and many other refugees here in Lancaster, they are some of the most hardworking people I've met. They're determined to pay their way. Uh, They have to repay the expenses that were in, that were incurred bringing them here. So you know, even though they they are flown here and resettled, those are those are costs that they have to pay back. So um, it's a it's a, the refugee resettlement program is a, is a really wonderful thing, and I think that uh, the people that it brings to the U.S. benefit benefit our society, our culture.
1: I, I'm interested in a man like Mohammed. Uh, what are what is his skill set? Uh, so many refugees come, and I guess the real question is, uh, do they all have a skill?
2: Sure, yeah. He he was uh, basically a truck driver and owned a small market um, in Syria. So he definitely has some some business and entrepreneurial acumen. He, he's interested in, in that sort of thing. Uh, he's currently training to get a CDL uh, to become a truck driver, which um, is in huge demand right now their companies you know are desperate to get to hire more truck drivers so i think that's the thing with the refugees that are coming in is that they're willing to do the jobs that a lot of um a lot of us don't want to do and so you know for he worked at a dry cleaner for for months when he first got here i think for over a year actually um, and so they're willing to work really hard, and and they worked they were working two or three jobs at a time just so that they could be self sufficient and pay their own bills.
1: It'll be interesting with his children uh, whether they um, uh, get a chance to go on and get a college education. That that to me will be the fascinating
2: part. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's that's definitely it, and that's that's certainly the goal. I think Muhammad sort of sees his life as a stepping stone for his kids. He's not. Um, he doesn't have any sort of uh, aspirations of being extremely wealthy or, um, you know, going back to college himself, but he is he is here for his boys. He came here for his boys, and he's living here for his boys, and um, he's going to do everything that he can to make sure that they end up with really good jobs and, and a good education. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. It will be very interesting to what, see how that goes.
1: What do we know about the boy's mother?
2: Uh, Maradi, she's, um she was working alongside Muhammad at the dry cleaner and then she got a job at a hotel um, and she's currently taking English lessons out in out in Michigan where they moved.
1: I wonder if they are the average refugee do you think they have a desire to go back home at some point or is that
2: uh, is that long gone? I've I've heard of some who have gone back, even back to Syria now. Um in fact some friends of Muhammad's who um he didn't know in Syria but he met them here in Lancaster. They were Syrian refugees and and they went back for a time, uh, just trying to see if it was still if it would be safe for them to live there and I'm not sure if they're still there or not. So I mean there's you know, there's such a strong desire to be home that I tend to discount. I think I tend to feel like, oh, we're there, they're in the States now, you know, like why would you ever want to leave the U.S.? But they still have so much, uh, so, so many memories and, and so much sort of back back there. Um, I think it really depends on the state of the place that they left. And so, like I said, in Muhammad's case, there's, there's just really nothing left.
1: What do you want people to take from our chat here,
2: Sean? Um, I would love it if people would – meet a refugee you know like just go out of your way to to get to know somebody Um, it will it will certainly open your eyes I don't know that it 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 will definitely change anyone's views from from positive to negative or negative to positive but I think that you know there's there's just so much good in getting outside of the messages that that we're seeing and hearing um, on the television and and actually meeting someone face to face so
1: well I'm so glad we could visit Sean Smucker, author of once we were Strangers our guest we've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour it's 94.9 FM and AM 950 the word in Orlando
0: more of the Pat Williams power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950 the word. listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat.
1: Uh Jerry Jenkins joins me, longtime friend. Uh many years. Uh he's in Colorado Springs, you know Jerry. Uh co-author of the Left Behind series and he's got another one coming, the new series, the Dead Sea Chronicles. Jerry, good to catch up with you. How are you?
3: I'm doing great, Pat. Good to talk to you.
1: So the Dead Sea Chronicles. Give me a little background. How did this all come about? How did this all come
3: about? Well, it really was the idea of the publisher, Bluey Publishing, out of uh, Tennessee. I've done some work with them before, and and usually I don't need ideas. I've got more ideas than I think I have years left to, to write, but uh, they just bounced off this, this idea of, you know, how about a, a story about an archaeologist who discovers something in the Middle East that that might change the face of history there. And, mm. uh, so I listened to the to the idea and really liked it. Uh, Byron Williamson is the head of worthy, and it was kind of his idea. Uh, they're associated with the Museum of the Bible in Washington, and uh, so this is all sort of a part of that project. And uh, I just kind of took that idea and I just kind of took that idea and ran with it. I, I have a Main character who's a late 30s female archaeologist, and, uh, and she's the one who wants to to do this dig in the Holy Land, and she's found something she wants to follow up on. So there's a modern day story, and then every other chapter I switch back four thousand years to the birth of Abraham. Mm. And, uh, so you've really got a biblical novel and a contemporary story all in one, and I just I really had fun with it. I think it was informed by the sort of binge watching of television that we all do now, with Netflix and some of these other servers, where writers have learned to to do setups and payoffs. Some are series long, some are uh, episode long, some are every 10 minutes you get a, you a setup and a payoff. And so, I think readers nowadays, addicted to screens, you know, are are impatient, and so they want quick little vignettes and scenes and stories that, that keep moving. So that's uh, that's what I tried to do here.
1: Tell me more about Nicole Berman.
3: Yeah, she's the, the main character, and uh, um, as I say, she's an archaeologist. And one thing I've learned in, in researching this, and I have a biblical and archaeological consultant, Dr. Craig Evans out uh, of Houston Baptist uh, University. An archaeologist has to have two doctorates, um, one in, you know, in their, their field of study, and then another that's specifically designed for international archaeology and uh if they don't have both of these dead they'll never be the head uh, of a dig anywhere and that type of thing well this this woman is the daughter of uh, a man who owns the foundation that finances this dig and he's an archaeologist too but i tell his story as well and of course this is all fiction it's, it's all made up but um, he's a, a vietnam vet so I, I have some scenes set in vietnam and uh, how he kind of strayed from his, his wealthy East Coast family and, and wanted to be his own person and then was wounded in Vietnam. Uh, and um, it turns out he's, he's Jewish by ethnicity, uh, but the woman he meets when he comes back home uh, wounded uh, is an evangelical Christian and leads him to faith, and so he becomes a, what we refer to as a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believes that Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's the way this girl was raised. And uh, she's independent, she's feisty, she's smart, and uh, she's single at the the time we we open the the series. This, I hope, will be about a six-book series. It all depends on how the market responds. If they like it, they get more. If they don't, then I'm on something else. But uh, but that's Nicole Berman.
1: Jerry, um, where do your ideas come from? Are novelists born, or are they developed?
3: I think it's a little of both um the the writing and the, the skill set that type of thing can be honed and polished and uh and i I consider myself a lifelong learner. I always want to be growing and and I want each book to be better than the last um, but there is a, a an element to to some of us novelists anyway that it, it's this idea machine and where they come from. Mine often come from disparate ideas that kind of kick around in my head. I'll hear about one idea and think that's interesting, and it doesn't go anywhere until I hear another one that sort of juxtaposes with it. Now, with this, um, since the, the basic idea came from the publisher and they thought it fit my, my skill set, um, what what happened here was that the idea of an archaeologist who discovers something monumental in the, in the Middle East is, is interesting, but to me, telling both those stories at the same time, going back four thousand years to the birth of Abraham, who eventually spawns uh, Isaac and Ishmael, who are at enmity to this day. If you if you watch the news, um, that's what makes it interesting to me. And then being able to tell this this uh, father's Vietnam story too, and how he comes to faith, and what you know, how that shapes the girl. Um, it's that type of thing, but you know when you say where do ideas come from? I think it's just letting those things rattle around, uh, think about them as they grow. If I tell this story to my wife or to my grown sons, and every time I tell it, it gets embellished in more and more, then I know it has legs. If I forget about it or if I just if it just lies there, then i I let it go because readers would let it go too, so that's where the the ideas came
1: for this one. How much did you know about Abraham in detail, Jerry, before you plunged into this work?
3: Uh, not enough, I discovered. <laughs> you know, you, you grow up in the church and you hear all the stories, but that's a fairly, um, you know, uh, super, superficial bit of training. And so when I was doing the writing on this first book, I have a, a chart in my office that I hang from a, uh, a flip chart, and it's probably four feet by five feet, and it, and it shows all the the lineages from the, from the beginning of time, at least from the biblical record. And I was astounded to realize how many of the patriarchs were still alive when other ones were born. For instance, when Abraham was born, uh, Noah's sons were still alive. And uh, and so Abraham, at a young age, I speculate, visited his ancestors and and heard firsthand accounts of what happened on the ark, the whole flood thing, and... and uh, And back in those times when when men walked and talked with God. So um, I I really felt like I I went to seminary here for the last last year. And then having this uh, Dr. Evans, who's a brilliant uh, biblical scholar, just on the other end of the phone or or a mouse click away is such a privilege because he just, he's a fount of information. He keeps me on track theologically and then professionally with the archaeology. I'll be writing a scene and I'll just think, now what would they use here and what
1: finish one of these Jerry uh, how do you know what to do with the second one or is it already prearranged in your mind
3: well I'm always a little bit surprised I'm Um, I, I think it's good for the author to not know everything because then the book can't be predictable to the reader. Because if the writer doesn't know, the reader sure can't know what's going
1: to Jerry Jenkins, uh, New York Times best-selling author, is our guest. Um, he's got a new book coming. It's going to be released uh, November 2018 with Worthy Publishing. Uh, the new series is called The Dead Sea Chronicles. Uh, the first book is called Dead Sea Rising, and Jerry, that uh, that raises a, a fascinating point. When you sit down to write, uh, do you have prearranged ideas, or uh, do they come to you as you're uh, as you're writing?
2: Uh, it's a
3: little of both. Because I I'm a panther, as I mentioned, I I have an idea where I'm going. I have some major plot points that I want to hit. Um, but I also want to be surprised. I want the characters to take me where they will. They often say things that surprise me and you mm. know different paths. And I think that's what makes us authors, is deciding, is this just a silly uh, rabbit trail that I need to ignore, or is this an interesting uh, way to go? Uh, I tend to be sort of an intuitive plotter. Uh, some people plot these things out and they say at the 10% mark, I need this inciting incident at the 25% mark, I need this twist or whatever. Uh, those sort of come to me as I go. And and I'll, I'm usually happy with uh, the result. And if I'm not, I just uh, just make adjustments. But uh, that's the fun of it, is that um, uh, having an idea where you're going and, and getting there um, is satisfying. But seeing where the characters in the story takes you, that's, that's the fun of it.
1: Uh, Jerry, why is Christian
3: fiction uh, so popular? And I think, people are looking for something beyond themselves. You know, my my experience with the, the left-behind phenomenon really taught me that, that people read books by the Pope and the Dalai Lama and the Eastern mystics, and and they hear about fiction that's based on biblical prophecy, um, and they just think, well, I, this satisfies a thirst and a hunger. I want to know what's coming. We live in fearful times, and... Uh, it seems to be getting worse all the time. So people want to have some idea of what might be coming. And um, this this series may not be as prophetic as the Left Behind series, but it is still based on prophecy. Because the, even the very title, Dead Sea Rising, people who have heard of the Dead Sea or have visited it realize this is truly a dead sea. It's just so full of salt that you can float without crying and, and uh, it's hard for anything to, to live there but the scripture says that the day will come when that becomes a, a hotbed again of live fish and, and wildlife and all that. And so so what does that mean? Why is that going to happen? What what comes with it? Um, that That's a, a really stark reality that the Dead Sea will rise again. So um, that's why I think people are attracted to, to, to books like this.
1: Jerry, how do you explain the phenomenon of the Left Behind series? Well, I'd love to think it
3: was the great writing.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> Aside from the great writing, of course. Yeah.
3: Well, again, pe- people are looking for something beyond themselves. They hear about about fiction based on biblical prophecy. And and all we were saying was, we're going to stick close to what the Scripture says as far as the predictions, but we're going to speculate on what that might look like. Let's Let's assume this happens next year or 10 years from now put characters in the way of these events, and say, how how would you react? How, how would you feel? And I think one of the secrets, which I didn't realize when I did it at the time, I have the rapture, the disappearance of the true believers from the earth in an instant, happen in the first chapter of the first book. So the only people who are left are the uninitiated or the unbelievers. And some of them realize immediately, this is what my friends were trying to tell me all this time. Clearly, this is this fulfillment of scriptures. Other people are saying, how can you say God is behind this when all this chaos is left? But the characters are searching for the truth, and all the people who would have inside lingo, the evangelical terminology, the church talk, they're gone. So the ones that are left are are normal people saying, if this happened, what would I think? Where would I go to find answers, and and what would I make of this? And so I I included uh, credible, skeptical characters because there are people who simply, even though it's an obvious fulfillment of prophecy, still harden their hearts, still don't believe. And so not everybody comes to faith. If, if this had been one of those books where, um, you know, the rapture happens, everybody sees that's the truth, so they, they come to faith, too, and all the taboo later after. That's not how life is. Now, there are those of us who are people of faith. We share our faith all the time. And some people respond to it, and a lot of people don't. And so I, I found letters from people who would say, I saw myself in this book, this is how I would have reacted. And other people will say, this is a bunch of baloney. I don't believe it, and this character and that character did not believe it either, and, and it resonates with me. So I think trying to be realistic and, uh, and yet show what, what, the, what it could look like um, if real people were in the way of these biblical events, that's, that's what made it work. And then the, the turning of the millennium right in the middle of our series. Some people accused us of, of doing it that way on purpose, you know, the timing we had no idea that people would see the end of the millennium as having anything to do with the end of the world because our calendar is four years off as it is, so who knows when anything ends or what it means.
1: Jerry Jenkins, with us from Colorado, author of the new book, Dead Sea Rising. we got another segment with Jerry. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The
0: Word, in Orlando more of the pat williams power hour in just a moment on 94.9 fm and am 950 the word you're listening to the pat williams power hour on 94.9 fm and am 950 the word now once again here's pat
1: Jenkins is with us uh... Talking about his new book, Dead Sea Rising, Jerry. I must ask you uh, uh, your most vivid memories of the, the late Tim
3: LaHaye. Well, Tim was a, a fascinating guy, and and uh, you know, I, I was. He was well known for for being kind of a polemic. He was. You know, uh, he had strong opinions, and he, he was a fighter. He would take on issues, but I remember him as kind of a softy. Mm. Uh, he wasn't a large man. You know, he was a little guy, a uh, brilliant scholar and, and uh, you know, quite a, a thinker. But when we would go to signings, uh, you, you'd look up after a while and realize Tim was gone. Really, You'd have to look over somewhere and you'd find him in a corner praying with somebody. Somebody would come up to the signing table and mention a prayer request or tell them they were seeking or they had questions about the faith. And he would just, you know, that would become his priority. I mean, he was a soul winner. That's the term we use in the evangelical community for somebody that just he just wants people to to come to faith, and he and he cared about people. I saw this happen in in green rooms and in uh, network television shows too. Somebody would come in and introduce themselves to us and say they'd be interviewing us, and before you know it, there's Tim in the corner with that person praying. And uh, but he was a great uh, great husband. He was uh, you know he and Bev I think were married 65 years or. In fact it would have been more than that because he died at ninety, and I think he, they were married before he was twenty five so sixty plus years and married had four kids and and um, was just consistent uh, you know for a long time he would he would preach he would write he would teach speak um, and just you know there's never a hint of a scandal with him he was he was uh, the real deal
1: Jerry, tell me about. The Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild, and, and what, what's the purpose of that organization?
3: You know, I feel so blessed in my career, um, having written so many books and sold so many books, and I, I just feel obligated and and privileged to be able to pass it forward. So um, I have the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild online, and uh, it's basically just me with a, a team that works out of— uh, I, I live in Colorado, but a team that works out of Tennessee— and uh, these are all, I, I call them the six-year-old. These are all the young guys that know the, the uh, technology and, the, and all the metrics of marketing and that type of thing. And uh, so I'm just teaching uh, students online, and the uh, thing has caught on. I thought maybe I'd have three or 400 students that would pay a little bit each month to, to get some tips, and we have over 2,000 now. Mm. And, uh, so it, it keeps me busy between books and, and during books. I'm keeping up with them and, and providing fresh content for them every month. and, and uh, It's just been a thrill. I, I really love doing it.
1: Jerry, I um, am of the belief uh, that everybody feels that they have a book in them. Uh, do you find that?
3: Yeah, I, I'm sure you have the same experience I do with all the books that you've had uh, under your belt. Um, and it's hard, for, hard to believe, that you and I met 45 years ago when I did a little story about you, and then wound up. And I think I think you're uh, helping you with your autobiography is my fourth book, and uh, back in the '70s. But uh, yeah, people who find out you write books, they come up and they say, "I've got a book in me," and uh, and frankly, that's that's the market for my Writers Guild. Um, it used to be I'd say, "Well, you know, very few people really do have a book in them." but I didn't want to discourage people because I had that dream once too. So did you. And uh, for some of us, it, it works out if, if you can learn and, and get the basics down. And so I thought, why not? If people believe they have a book in them, let's, let's teach you how to do it. Right. It's not a hobby. It's not a diversion. It's a, it's a real uh, important discipline of study. And so, uh, so I offer that and, uh, there seems to be no end to that market, as you say. Everybody feels like they've got a book in them somewhere, and, and uh, I'm happy to help them find out if that's true.
1: So they come, Jerry, and they uh, they say to me, uh, I want to write a book. What should I do? And I say, write the book. Yeah. No, 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 no. What should I do? No, no, no. Write the book. Well, how do I do that? Uh, one page at a time, sir. Uh, at the end of one year, you'll have 365 pages, which is far too much. But write the book. Well, well, then what I what do I do? And I say, well, that's the easy part. Uh, finding a publisher. Uh, they're they're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, but 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 write it first. Uh,
3: does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And um, you know, people think there's some secret to it, or some magic formula, or some potion that's going to make a bestseller overnight. Uh, fact is it's it's hard work and if you want to write a book you have to write it and and you'll figure it out i mean as you say you know you can talk to people you know, dreamers talk about to self-publishing, where you pay to be printed rather than getting paid to be published. But that it, I, I say use that as a last resort, but that's a, a valid option, too. If somebody feels they really want to get their book out and, and a traditional publisher
1: What is the state of Christian publishing as we speak?
3: cheaply enough, that that's where people buy them. And we can we can fight against that and say, you're hurting the little guy and all that stuff. But the fact is we live in a free enterprise system, um, and the more competition there is like that, the better it is for the consumer. And uh, what I tell writers is, regardless of what happens in the, in the marketplace and in the business, the writing still has to be good. Mm. It still has to be compelling in You don't write a bestseller. You write from the passion of your heart. And if it's good enough, word of mouth will make it a bestseller.
1: I once had a publisher say to me, Jerry, you can't sell books one at a time. You've got to get the army working for you. What
3: what, what does that mean? I I think that's all about. And that gives me sort of great comfort as a writer. You'd love to engineer that part yourself and say, I'm going to write this and then I'm going to sell the hound out of it. The fact is, that's not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is content. I need to be writing and, and working on getting people turning the pages. And then what happens in the marketplace? I don't have control over, so I don't worry about um, it. I felt called to full-time Christian work, and writing is just the way I fulfill that call. So just by writing, I'm, I'm obeying and succeeding. What happens after that is really not in my hands. Uh, So I can get
1: on to the next book. In other words, God gave you a talent in writing. He gave you a passion to do it. And right there at that intersection, Jerry, let's call that the sweet spot. uh, That's where you have uh, been spending your life. That's exactly
3: And it might sound falsely modest, but I believe I've been mono-gifted. I I don't sing or dance or preach. Mm-hmm. I just I just write, and that's why I feel obligated to keep doing. It. I mean, this Dead Sea Rising is my 195th book. I mean, I've written more books than I've ever read. You know, so mm. um, but that's that's where my sweet spot is, and and that's why I feel obligated to keep, to keep doing
2: it.
1: Jerry Jenkins has been our guest. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The
0: Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat.
1: Thanks so much for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Sean Smucker was our guest in the first half hour, uh, talking about his book, Once We Were Strangers. And in the second segment, uh, author Jerry Jenkins, best-selling author Jerry Jenkins, was with us, uh, talking about his new book, which is part of a six-book series, Dead Sea Rising. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, my most recent book is out. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. We take a look at the great Coach John Wooden and his summer camps. So much to learn uh, from uh, the great John Wooden. Have a wonderful week ahead, folks. We'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word, and remember, faith comes by hearing.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time, where faith comes by hearing. 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word.